0: I put my hand. This is like a touchdown. I'm doing a touchdown. What is this called? Goalposts? Am I the advertisement for Judaism right now?
1: <laughs> I, think, I think right now sports, it's sports. We love them. It's all you.
0: This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Budnick, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Tablet Editor at Large Liel Leibovitz at large, and in charge at
1: large, and not at all in charge of anything <laughs> going on in the world these days. Hello.
0: And our West Coast West Wing correspondent, Joshua Molina.
2: I'm here at Medium. <laughs> he's, he's in the West,
0: but his heart is in the East. Exactly.
2: That is true. I'm facing East as we record this.
0: <laughs> Today on the show, we're sharing an interview with Netta Ariel. She's the director of the Ma'ala Film School in Israel, and she shares what her students are working on these days. We also speak with Dr. Phil. That's right, the Dr. Phil of daytime television fame. He's starting his own TV network, and he also has a new book out. He talks to us about all of that. Plus, today is our four hundredth episode. That's a lot. That's a that's a high number. It's
2: not mine, but I'm happy for you guys.
0: It counts. It counts. Don't what? worry. Really? Well, okay. You, yeah, right.
1: you 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 retroactively inherit old. I'm sorry. Yes. Sorry.
2: Look, I ate the cake when uh, the West Wing had a hundredth episode party, and I I didn't belong there either. But I'll 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 always eat the cake. You belong here, and we love you. Can, Let can,
0: him eat cake. We say. Can one of the
1: producers very quickly while we do this look up for some. Interesting gematria words that equal 400. So we could do some mm, stupid yeah. gematria.
3: Hey there, J. Crew. It's producer Josh Cross with some gematria tidbits for episode 400, courtesy of gematrix.org. First of all, in the religious sphere, 400 equals Mario Bergoglio, which is the rest of the name of Jorge Mario Bergoglio, also known as Pope Francis. Interestingly, 400 is also Papa Francesco. On the other side, it's also Book of Satan and Necronomicon. Perhaps in the realm of world politics, 400 is also equal to It's Go Time and Buckingham Palace. Then, for our younger, single, and perhaps lonely friends among the crowd, 400 equals the following four things, soup, cigarettes, Fortnite, and Dumbledore. And finally, if you're looking to watch a movie inspired by our 400th episode, you can watch Batman and Robin. You can watch Total Recall, or even the obscure, weird Justin Long movie, Tusk. All three of which are equal to four hundred. Now back to the show.
0: I have to say, the problem with being Jewish is like it's not episode three hundred and sixty or episode six hundred thirteen. Like four when you get to just like a solid. Hundo numeral. It doesn't feel as exciting. It it's, like it's 418. Very,
2: 400 is very goish.
0: 420.
2: You're right, Stephanie. That is the one problem about being Jewish.
0: I, that, but, that's my one complaint right now. There's,
2: there's literally <laughs> no
1: other uh, setback. But You know how like in some hotels, there's no 13th floor? Yes. It's like 12 and 14. But like if you're on the 14th floor, you, you know what floor you're on. I think it's the same thing with, like, Jewish podcasts. Just be like, episode 18, episode 36, episode 72. (laughs) Can you imagine? It's like
2: Jewish pod
0: years, basically, Mm -hmm. instead of dog years.
2: I've always taken that as slightly anti-Semitic, as we are a bar mitzvah at 13, and it's kind of an auspicious number for us. That's the floor they have to get rid of. Oh,
0: yes. We should bring back 13. No wonder Taylor Swift loves 13 so much. It's the year of the, the bas mitzvah. Yes. I actually... I had a take that I shared on a call earlier, on a professional work call, which is that I think non-Jews who grew up in places where they attended bar mitzvahs, you do not turn out anti-Semitic. I think you love the Jews. You love the Jews because you're like they're just here to have a good time. All
1: these people want is to give me Shirley Temples. Yeah,
0: what's not to like? I want to play Coke and Pepsi. I want to run across the dance floor. Like I think that everyone should be going to bar mitzvahs when they're younger.
1: I
2: got a hoodie.
0: Exactly. I danced my pants off, but they were scrubs.
2: I want a pair of headphones.
0: Exactly. What do you think of this incredibly hot take?
2: Yeah, I think we should fashion our B'nai Mitzvah receptions to pull people in and win their favor.
0: (laughs) Just please like us. Here is a DJ, a dance floor,
2: a kids menu. (laughs) Maybe a little loot bag. You might get a temporary tattoo. You can take funny pictures. We're fun. Making me realize I I haven't been to a bar bar mitzvah in a long time. I guess I'm getting, I'm nearing the age. I have to wait now until my friend's grandchildren are going to be of the correct age. And then I'll have another wave, God willing.
0: Jaker, you heard it here first. Joshua Molina needs an invite to your bar mitzvah. Uh, A a desperate
2: plea from a desperate man. (laughs)
0: Invite him
1: to your simcha. I
0: feel like you should get on the like, you know, people have like NBA stars, J-Lo at their bar mitzvahs now. You should get on that list.
2: Yeah, sure. For the kids who just love West Wing and that one episode of iCarly.
1: No, I'm sorry. It's for the kids who love Leopoldstadt.
0: Also, I think I think the iCarly like, kids have oh, aged way out. Could you, could, you do, could you do this monologue about assimilation?
1: Because
0: <laughs> all our friends love it. Besides, you know, turning 400 pods old and trying to save the world with bar mitzvahs, what else you guys got going on?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, we're recording this on a, on a Monday as we have barely recovered. From uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, why
0: is this day not a day off? No I thought to idea. myself as I rolled into preschool drop off very late. Right. So why yesterday have was, today? Really,
1: was really Erev Super Bowl, but today yes. should be Super Bowl. Yes. Isrukhag Super Bowl. Yeah. There was a taken on, on Twitter from a person by the name of Elon Altman, or Elon Altman, as as we call him here on the show. He tweeted as follows, so X'd as follows, or shared on the social media previously known as Twitter as follows Religion Super Bowl ads, Christianity, join us. Scientology, join us. Judaism, leave us alone, (laughs) which I think is uh, a very astute observation.
0: It is true. I forgot that all the religions come out on the Super Bowl. The Scientologists are like, here's a splashy ad. The Mark Wahlberg helmed. Hallow oh, the Catholic awesome. app has its own ad. I will say though, props to Tablet writer and former Unorthodox guest Maggie Phillips. She's our religious literacy correspondent. She wrote about Hallow like years ago, and so when I see this ad, I'm like, oh yeah, Hallow. I know about that from my favorite Jewish magazine. But yeah, that was I like that
1: ad. Look, I'm not going to comment on other religions' ads. Okay, uh, let's just let's, stick
0: with internal. Let, let
1: other irreverent podcasts and other faith traditions do that. Are there? Are there any? Uh,
0: oh, just I,
1: I, oh. Jesuitical, we're Jesuitical? looking at you. Exactly. Please. You know. You know. You know what. You <laughs> (laughs) got to do. But I have to say those stop anti-Semitism ads really kind of totally rubbed me the wrong way. That is 100 percent not the message that I want to send to the world at this point in time.
0: Say more. Well, I I, never thought I'd say this, but say more. First of
1: all, I don't know how many of them were actually run on the actual show, because, you know, nowadays people do the thing where they share like special Super Bowl ads on the Internet without having to pay the seven million dollars for 30 seconds. But I know at least some of them did. One of them was, you know, this woman coming home and seeing, um, you know, swastika on her garage door and she's very troubled and there's sad music and her non-Jewish neighbor is looking on. And then when she returns home in the afternoon, the garage door has been painted white and then he kind of camera pans over to the neighbor and you just see like specks of white paint on his shoe. And you understand this good Samaritan did a good thing. He He helped the helpless Jew. I would like for this woman to click the garage door. Garage door opens. Adam Sandler as the Zohan comes out, grabs the person who does this, says, you would not like this, and then like does like a crazy kick while having a fizzy bubach. This is this is the vibe that I feel I need
2: right now. I will say I I was kind of moved by that ad. I liked it, <laughs> although I wanted there to be. I did want there also to be one more beat where the woman looked at the door and then complained about the shade of white that the neighbor right. had chosen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this ah! is an eggshell.
2: You call this yeah, I white? Appreciate the, I appreciate the gesture, but...
0: By the way, here's my issue with this ad. The said graffiti on the garage door was a swastika, and then the words, no Jews. And I was like, is that what it would say? No Jews? Like, I think you usually see, like, F Jews, which I understand you didn't want to put that word on the broadcast. But I was like... Who would write that? Or is the idea that these people are just so dumb, like when they get the swastikas wrong? Well, at like,
1: least at least these, this one got the swastika right. Yeah, the swastika. It's a very right. hard thing. To, only the, the right smartest <laughs> neo-Nazis get the, the little, And then we're like, know, well done. Yeah. But once again, how hard is it, in, in a serious note, forget, you know, Israel and uh, Matzav, as we say, the situation. How hard is it to do, like, an ad for Judaism? Like, the Christians could do the sort of like, ah, oh, Jesus is love. Here are people who disagree with each other, watching each other's feet. Scientology only had to show its freaking gnarly real estate that it has all over the world. What would we do? Like, do you like do you like herring? Do you like a lot of like text to study? Do you like this agreement?
0: Well, you know, I love not the whole saying thing. We're the best Judaism. We're OK. I love the whole thing. It's like we don't proselytize. <laughs> and it's right. like, do you ever think about why? <laughs> yeah, our ads wouldn't be the good. We're the best.
1: Here's the deal with us. We're like the A team. You could
2: only find us if you, like, really need us. The J-Team, yes. We don't, we, don't, we don't advertise. The J-Team is a good name for a podcast if someone else wants to come at us. Right.
1: And we're literally small enough to fit in one van. Josh and Melina. Yes.
0: Pitch Judaism.
1: Yep. You have, you, have, you have $7 million in
2: 30 seconds. Go. Oh. But why? Why? <laughs> don't, we, don't we want to discourage people from taking on the the yoke of the Torah? Judaism, enter at your own peril.
0: I know I did it before, but I do feel like we play on this like the, why would you want to join us? Because like, actually, we are freaking awesome. And being Jewish is really cool. Maybe not right now, but the, in the moment. Especially that,
1: right now. It's but, the best. But, but I'm but, saying
0: I'm saying in these moments when it seems like being Jewish is a liability in so many situations, like we need to double down and we need to be proud. And it's like, The ad I actually want is, like, proud Jews.
2: Well, maybe we open on Ali Raisman winning the gold medal for her floor exercise to the tune of Hava Nagila. That's inspiring.
0: I think it's these moments where we do need to see Jewish role models, right? We do need to see people who are proudly Jewish in all sorts of places, right? Not just, like, the stereotypical places we imagine Jews to be. But, I mean, I just... I think we want to see the diversity of Jewish life. I think we want to see the richness of Jewish That's life. That's why I'm
2: pitching sports, which I don't think is where you, which is the <laughs> go-to touchstone for Jewish people. I mean,
0: the, the richness maybe is there. I'm all about this. Let's take out this billboard. Go Jewish. But Joshua Molina, a lot of dramatic things
1: happened during the Super Bowl. But one really dramatic thing happened during the Super Bowl.
2: The rescue of two hostages?
0: As someone clever on Twitter said, the only touchdown that matters, was that playing Touching Down?
2: Yes, this was thrilling news that uh, two hostages, two older gentlemen of Argentinian birth, were rescued from Rafah and brought home, uh, apparently in good health, thank God.
1: And the funniest thing is that immediately, as soon as the news started, every Israeli instinctively went to the computer and played the theme song from Operation Thunderbolt, mm. the Entebbe movie. The Entebbe raid, yeah. it's was like, oh God, we needed this.
0: Jewish movie club. I want our listeners to write in, like with on screen portrayals of just like badass Jews.
1: To me, the, the definitive kick ass Jew on screen will always be the Zohan. I'm sorry. Let's
0: put him at the top that of the is, list.
1: That is really the greatest of all Jewish heroes.
0: J crew, J team, write in on OrthodoxyTablamag.com. Tell us where should we be going for bold, badass portrayals of Jews in all walks of life? Send them to us. We'll start watching. You'll start watching. It'll be great. News
1: of the Jews of oh, the yeah. TJ
0: News of the Jews. All right, time for some News of the Jews. Here's one of those stories that isn't actually a Jewish story, but maybe could be drawn into our universe. Uh, This is from Eater Los Angeles. The headline reads The hottest new accessory in LA restaurants? Your takeout containers from home. People bring their own bags to grocery stores and metal water bottles everywhere. So why not apply that line of thinking to dining out?
1: If it involves leftovers, it is automatically a Jewish story. No questions asked.
0: Ha. And this is basically by a writer who says she started to bring her own takeout containers to restaurants. And she says she grew up in a multi-generational Vietnamese household in Southern California. And she says, my grandma's commitment to reusing plastic containers trickled down to my mother and eventually to me. But yeah, I feel like this could be a Jewish story, too.
2: Although if you were to take your own containers, your own to-go containers to a glatt kosher restaurant, they wouldn't yeah, they allow would it, not, would they? Yeah. They would poo-poo it. I'm always I love when I order from a kosher restaurant like delivery, and it comes and it's almost impossible to get to the food because it's so sealed. Yeah, it's like an escape. The room. integrity of the seal is very important.
1: I'll say in one of our live shows, I believe in Chicago, we met a wonderful woman. We were at a restaurant and we had, you know, a nice meal and she took leftovers container, and then she was giving us a ride to our event. She popped a trunk and in the trunk, she had a cooler. And I asked, do you always keep a cooler in the trunk? And she says, yes, because that way, if I want leftovers, which is always, I just pop them in the cooler and then I don't have to rush home and put them in the fridge. That yeah, yeah. is a great Jew.
0: That is baller. You that is smart. That is thoughtful.
1: I would like to share a news story that um, that is fascinating. May I?
2: Please. Please. Okay.
1: This is a headline you don't hear every day. Government failure. To arrange circumcisions delays conversion to Judaism for 98 men. This is from the Times of Israel. At least 98 Israeli men who completed their Orthodox conversion to Judaism have been waiting since April for a government-funded circumcision that would finalize the process, officials said, citing bureaucratic complications and funding issues. First of all, um, government-funded circumcision is an amazing name for a band. I'll put it <laughs> right out there. Second of all, really, why do you need a government funded? Like, why would a government be funding the circumcision if you really want to do it? Can't you not fund your own moral? Plus, I'm sorry, is it really that hard? I mean, it's not like there's a shortage of morals in Israel. And like, what is a moral cost in Israel? And this is since April. Like what, almost a year?
0: My favorite is a word that emerges in this article that I don't know for some reason is very funny to me. I'll just read this. And this is from the uh, acting director of the Conversion Authority, Rabbi Yehuda Amichai.
1: Not the poet, Yehuda <laughs> you know, I was going to say? <laughs> but, like, but where, but where the do you go from here? Right, Yehuda yes, Amichai. Exactly. He, has his, he has his skills too. No need to look <laughs> down on that, Yehuda <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's sharp prose. To arrange circumcisions, Amichai said the authority is legally required to issue a tender, which has to be approved by an external committee for hospitals. A new tender is needed because the rabbinate's previous tender expired, and its contractor won't renew the contract. And I'm just like, I literally was reading this article. I'm like, what am I reading? Like, the tender is needed for the circumcision. I don't know. It just made me uncomfortable. Careful, and it's tender. Yeah, love, me, love yeah. me tender. And that's all I have to say about that.
1: Just love me tender. It's been a, it's been a rough day. <laughs> Uh, won't some intrepid American memorial do a mitzvah and fly to Israel for a work trip?
2: That is one way to discourage, as we discussed earlier, to discourage conversion is to give people more and more time to think about their impending circumcision. That's adults. that's
1: right. Why don't you sit right here and contemplate the fact that at some point, someone with a knife is going to come knocking on the door. You may not know when. Stephanie, what else is new in uh, the medicinal Jewish field this, this week?
0: We got one more headline for you. This is from the New York Jewish Week. Why this Upper East Side doctor is offering free plastic surgery to victims of anti-Semitism. That's actually a nice segue from you can't get a circumcision over there. You can get
1: the transition is your nose. I could cut
0: (laughs) (laughs) in the three months since he started offering free plastic surgery to victims of anti-Semitic hate crimes or anyone affected by Hamas's deadly October 7th attack on Israel. Upper East Side plastic surgeon Ira Savetsky has performed One nose job has been asked to remove a tattoo and counsel the victim of an anti-Semitic assault in New York. And while these aren't quite the kinds of cases he anticipated after making the offer in November, the Jewish doctor, who boasts a significant social media following, said he hasn't regretted his offer. So let's, for context here, this is Ira Savetsky. He's married to Lizzie Savetsky, who I think a lot of people probably follow. She's a very, very active advocate for Israel and and Jewish people on Instagram.
2: So, is, am I to understand that this is for people who have who have been beaten badly, who have suffered physical hate crimes?
0: Yes. Yeah, so I think this all started when Dr. Savetsky met someone who had been sort of attacked in an anti-Semitic context. Um, and so he, so this guy gets punched in the face a bunch and. What do you do in that case? So the
1: answer is like, you know what? You get punched in the face for obvious reasons. Here, l- let me let me help you look less submitted. No,
0: I think it was more like, let me fix it. But, you know, this is actually really sad. Someone reached out to him about getting a Hebrew high tattoo removed. Um, ah. just fearing that it might make this person more identifiably Jewish. So that is so depressing.
2: 2024. I would
1: need like a face off like the, the Travolta Nicholas Cage movie type of like face transplant to local cholesterol. It's like, honestly, how much work would I need done to not look like the world's biggest Jew? Like, so we could replace your nose, cheeks, ears, uh, like everything about you. And, and even But we then. can't
0: tamp down that neshama. It's like, ah, oh, I try. But yeah, I guess if anyone needs rhinoplasty stemming from any kind of trauma, Dr. Iris Savetsky is is here for you.
2: Well, he's a good man, but that's a sad... That's a sad story that has a tinge of sadness there for me.
1: So there you have it. Takeout containers, government-funded circumcisions and de people via plastic surgery. It is 2024, everybody. <laughs>
0: We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Our Jewish guest is Neta Ariel. She's the director of the Ma'ala School of Film and Television in Jerusalem. She joins us to talk about how film students at Ma'ala are shifting their focus to bring attention to the hostages still held in Gaza. Neta Ariel, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. Thank you. You are the director of the Ma'ale Film School in Jerusalem. A lot of people know exactly what that is. But for our listeners who have not yet heard of it, will you tell us a little
4: bit about the school? So Ma'ale is a film school located in the center of Jerusalem. If you heard about Shtisel, Shabab Nikim, Shrugim, and a lot of other films, so Ma'ale graduate made them. Ma'ale has kind of a Israel and a Jewish agenda. A lot of our students come from an uh, orthodox uh, communities in education, but it's open to everybody. So we have all kinds of population from the ultra-orthodox to the secular. And it's a very unique and special film school. And you're being modest. It is the, it is the film school. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: So we have been in conversation for a while about these amazing programs that you do. One in particular, these video therapy workshops that you've been doing, of course, In the post-October 7th world, your focus as a film school has shifted. So will you tell us a little bit about what happens after October 7th for the school and how you guys pivoted to serve the broader community?
4: After a week or two of a little bit shock and sadness, you know, everything was closed in Israel. We're not allowed to open the school. I must say that a lot of our students are in the army, so... Not all of them can come to study. After two weeks, we start to say, okay, what we can do to contribute our uh, tools and abilities to the Israeli society and to the war efforts. We start to do three projects. One, we immediately offer the people that was evacuated from their home from the south and from the north to a lot of hotels in Jerusalem, in the Dead Sea, in Tel Aviv, etc., Events, screening our films, come to them and make workshop how to use writing or filmmaking to express themselves, tell their stories, make documentary films. It was amazing once to see so many people help them and come to make them happy and to do a lot of things. And we have our tools that give them some ability to tell the, the story and to do with it something artistic. So this is one thing that we are doing still. The second thing, we saw that it's very important to work in the social media, especially not for the Israelis, but here in America and in Europe, to bring the voices of those who was held uh, as and now still in Gaza. You know, women and men that stuck there, and we want to be part of this effort. So my uh, filmmakers graduate, making short videos on each one of them that the family wants. To bring their voice and uh, it's on our website and Instagram and Facebook. And we want that people will, will watch them and help us to push and to bring them home. This is a, our, one of our main goals. This is what we can do.
0: So will you tell us a little bit about these video therapy workshops, which, as we mentioned, you have been doing for quite
4: some time. How did those come about and what are they? Okay, so I think that the story starts around 20 years ago. We are a very small film school, so we know every student, and especially when they started to write their graduate films they study for four years. And we found ourselves every year or two reading a script and understand that these stories that they wrote based on a trauma, a secret, an unfinished business— and they are not even aware that they are choosing this opportunity to make a film and to write it, maybe change the end, maybe change the character, whatever. And, you know, the are adults they are coming when they are 20-something after serving in the Israeli army or national service. So we are not asking them, is it your story? It's how do you know? I can tell you that one of our students wrote in the past a script about the post-trauma in the army. So one of our teachers that helped him say, you know, I think that you have to make a research because it's not reasonable that the husband hit his wife during the night when he's sleeping and he has a nightmare. I don't think so. So the, the student tell, I don't need the research. It's my story. It's happened to me. I never share it with anyone. And this is the first time that I want to tell what happened to me, that people will know, even my parents doesn't know. So we understood that it's an amazing tool because to make a film, it's a long process. Therapies also must be a long process. It's not like to take a picture, a stills picture, and that's it. So this is one thing that it just came to me that we have to use this tool. Another thing that happened in more or less in the same time is that we had opportunity to raise scholarship for our students but the foundations that give us the money say, but they have to contribute to the society. So we say, okay, they are students of filmmaking. So maybe they will work with youth at risk or disables and do some workshop with them. So my students did what their teachers does. They tell them, let's write your story and let's make a movie about it. And when they did it, suddenly we saw that the kids or the youth that were part of it, had an amazing process. And their guides say, listen, it's the first time that they have a, a positive experience and they did something successful and they tell their story and then their parents come to see your friends. So we said there is something here. So we did tens of groups in the last two decades. And I think that it's about time that we prepare ourselves to the next step. Unfortunately, we have so many people now in Israel with the trauma that were hurt. And we now prepare the ground to start to work with them in a few months. It's
0: amazing to really think about the way film and these creative projects allow you to process all sorts of trauma. And we've talked a lot on the show about why Israeli TV, why Israeli film is so good, right? Why all around the world we're we're importing it. We're trying to sort of distill that for our own cultures. And part of it does seem to be the high stakes nature of Israeli life, right? Just the sort of volatility that at any moment, as we've sadly seen, um, can erupt. And it's really fascinating to think that like out of this horrible thing that happened on October 7th and is continuing to happen, great
4: art eventually might come out of it. Unfortunately, I must say that all the Israeli society in all kinds of fields, not only in art and culture and filmmaking, but. You would see how everybody thinks, what is the best thing that I can do with my abilities, with my talent, whatever. And people volunteer and amazing things happened. It is all said that it's because of of the war, but it still showed the strength of the Israeli society. And I'm so happy to be part of it. We have our small area and the filmmaking tool, but uh, yes... In the end of the day, if we can help people and give them the ability to take care of themselves, give them tools and give them a voice. And I can tell you a very nice uh, story that I had. After Operation Protective Age uh, in 2014, we also had a war in Gaza. After a few months, we opened a group for bereaved mother. And I just knew someone that years before used to work in, in Male, one of our economic departments, and she left. And her son passed away in, in Gaza war in 2014. So of course I went to the funeral and the Shiva. And when we opened the group, I called her and I said, Listen, I want to invite you and I want you to know that we're going to have a video therapy for believed mother and maybe come. You live in Jerusalem, it's going to be in Jerusalem. So she said, Thank you so much for thinking about me and invite me but i don't i will not come i don't want to belong to this group i don't allow myself i don't want to meet other mother like this i can't i can't so i said okay no problem i just want you to know that we are going to do there will be women like you but so she said no thank you it was and before we open the group, most of them don't know what is videotherapy. So we invite them just to introduction. Come to the school. We are doing something. We explain them what we're going to do. We show them examples, what we did in the past. So I sent her invitation only to the introductions meeting. And I saw what will be, will be. And she came and she said, I just came because you honor me and you invite me, but I'm not going to be part of this group. I said, fine, just thank you for coming. And then was the first meeting and she came, and then the second, and all the time, every time I say, Hi, how are you? And she said, I'm fine, but I'm not part of this group. And then, just before Pesach, one of the, the tools was that they have to choose an item that used to belong to the killed son and to make a voiceover. So they told them, Go home, find something that was belong to the your son. And you have to to write it and then to film it and bring it next day a week. So this woman that didn't want to come and to be part of this group, she bought one of the most amazing kind of an exercise. She shoot the brush of her son in a glass and the voiceover was, you know, it's almost Pesach. And in Pesach, our family saw up to the garbage all and we changed, we have new. But I belong to... She said the name of her son. And I want to ask you not to throw me up and leave me here. I even agree to clean corners, but just let me stay. It was so touching. The other also was amazing. But this is example of how people in this terrible situation that you are in the morning and you lost your son or someone from your family and you have no tools to deal with it. And it's not enough to hug them, and you have to give them. First of all, they were together. They come, they laugh, they cry, they tell stories. The gathering together every week was amazing. There were women that come two hours, they come from the other area of Israel, they say, we don't care, we drive, we need a quiet time, we can cry, we can sing. So I know from inside that there is Sentence in Hebrew Everybody that save only one soul It's like you save all day So I feel that even a group of 12, 15 women, men, youth Old people, if we can help them We are going to do it
0: not Ariel. It is such an honor to talk with you and our listeners can learn more about Maale at maale.co.il. That's M-A-A-L-E-H dot C-O And if you want to see these amazing social media films featuring small portraits of the hostages, you can get on Instagram and follow them at M-A-A-L-E underscore film underscore school. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: All right, let's get to the mailbox. We've got a lot of letters coming in and we are loving it. This one comes in from Rachel. She says, hi, podcast crew. I just wanted to say thanks. My mom recommended Unorthodox to me after October 7th, and it's honestly been a lifeline. I'm a little behind, but I loved your reporting from Israel. I just listened to the Moshe Kosher interview and related to so many things he said. This podcast offers me a little laughter with my tears. Thanks for helping me feel less alone. Rachel, thank you for listening and making us part of your world. What a sweet email. Our next letter came in as a voicemail to our listener line. As a reminder, we have a listener line. You can leave us messages
5: there as well. Hey, guys. Catch up in the back catalog. I am a conservative Jew. So is my wife. We're both converts, but that's not really what I called. We're getting back into our face, and we've never been as observant as we are right now, and we're really getting into kosher, but my wife does not want to replace our fiesta wear, and we recently unpackaged our wedding flatware, which we never used for 20 years. And we're using that, and we're not replacing that. Order. So we've fully replaced all our cooking ware. We're using eating kosher meats, and we're trying to follow the hectures. We're not really going to replace our dinnerware. And my question to you guys is, where do you draw the line as far as the Jewish life goes? Where is your OJ, as I call it, when you're over Jew? And how do you not over Jew it? Or should you just throw caution to the wind and just cram all the mitzvah you possibly can and just go, just go mature going with it. Where do you draw that work life balance and let the secular world end? Love to hear where the stopping point is from Orthodox people especially. Love you guys' show. It's been a godsend. Baruch Hashem.
1: First of all, I will never not think of O. J. Simpson as over Jew Simpson, ha. which which is a wonderful thing. <laughs> so uh yeah, nameless caller. You're asking an amazing, amazing question that, you know, I myself spend a lot of time thinking about as I you know, embarked on my own Jewish journey, just as we're all on our own Jewish journeys. But I'm kind of going to answer it by first kind of rejecting the last, you know, sentence or two. It's not about keeping the secular world out or letting the secular world in. There's no such thing as the secular world. You know, this is all Hashem's world. Everything here is Hashem's creation. And simply, it's a matter of your decision of how you want to bring Jewish meaning and practice into your life. And honestly, The possibilities are sort of endless because I know people in the Orthodox community who would gladly step into a non-kosher restaurant and eat, you know, a salad or something that they're fairly certain will not have been exposed to any non-kosher materials. I know people who would only eat in very glott kosher restaurants. I know people who would, you know, be very careful and observant about only drinking kosher wine or pasta sterile, the kosher bread. It's really a matter of where you feel comfortable, which I think is not a journey to be approached with a sense of, you know, censorship and trepidation. Don't think about it as like, oh, there are rules and I must obey some and reject some. Just think about it in terms of like, okay, well, I want to do these things. Honestly, clearly something in your soul led you to say, I want to do this. I want to keep more kosher. Go with that feeling. Say like, okay, why, why am I thinking like this? Why am I feeling this? What is it that I really want to do? let's just try it out. Let's just go on this journey and see where it takes us. And if you feel very comfortable, like our family, for example, eating out in non-kosher restaurants and, you know, assiduously avoiding non-kosher foods in said restaurants, that's great. And if you feel like taking all of your dishes and koshering them, that's not very hard to do. And if you say like, hey man, I put them in the dishwasher and I'm only eating kosher meat. And so that's kind of good enough for me. That's fine too. I think the most important thing and some rabbis, I assume, will disagree with me. But the most important thing is to really focus on the joy and the pleasure and the meaning that this practice and these mitzvot bring you. Not to think of them as strictures, because they're never meant to be that. They're paths to get closer to Hashem, closer to our mitzvot or our tradition, closer to what it is that you're already feeling, because it led you back home to Judaism and it led you to want to keep kashrut. So uh, just go with that. Here, here.
0: Also, we're talking about fiesta ware. Those are those amazing, brightly colored dishes. I don't want you giving up on them.
2: No, kosher them. Yeah, like very easy to kosher them. Like
0: really, I was on a
2: list. Supremely easy to
1: do. There are
0: actually like internet discussions about how to kosher fiesta ware. We'll help you. We'll give you our non-Rabbinic ordination to kosher them. We can make up a ceremony and help you. Those dishes bring me joy. They bring you joy. I think you want to keep them in your life.
2: That was a very good answer, by the way, Leo. I found that moving and awesome and open minded and big hearted. Thank you. You're so much better than everyone says. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I aim to disappoint. <laughs> no, I'm always I'm always inspired and refreshed to hear you answer that way because I think that really is that gets the, the ruach of it all. I'm glad that you're you're not somebody who is mired down in the minutiae or can't see the forest for the trees. The ruach of it all is all we got.
0: Keep those letters, keep those voicemails coming. Email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a message on our listener line, 914 570 4869. Our Gentile of the week is Dr. Phil. He's starting his own TV network, and he also has a new book out called We've Got Issues, How You Can Stand Strong for America's Soul and Sanity.
1: Dr. Phil, welcome to Unorthodox. Well, thanks so much.
6: I appreciate you having me.
1: So it is an absolute pleasure to have you. There is a lot to talk about, mainly your new book, We've Got Issues. We'll get there in a second. But I I want to start with a video that I've seen recently, very shortly after the October 7th attacks, you produced, I think, a five or six minute long video. And when a lot of other people were, you know, giving statements that were sometimes, uh, you know, far, shall we say, from ideal, you delivered a very stark reminder of right versus wrong. This is days after the attack. How did it come about? Tell, Tell me, where were you on October 7th? What did you feel? Why did you decide to make this video?
6: Well, and I I love the way you framed that question in right versus wrong. And I I think I said in the video, I I don't remember. I I said, if I didn't say, I I should have said, I'm not a political animal. I'm certainly not uh, steeped in geopolitics. And I I would fail a history lesson on all the history of, of that part of the world. But I don't need to be... Uh, a geopolitical expert to know right from wrong. I, I don't need a degree in geopolitics to know uh, murderers and assassins when I see them. And uh, this was not an act of war. This was someone uh, hitting soft targets, uh, elderly women and children. These were unconscionable assassins. And I, I've been criticized. I've been attacked by bot farms. I've had death threats, and I just double down. Because look, there's right and there's wrong.
1: You have a chapter in the book called uh, "Deprogram Yourself," or or devoted to to this idea, which I love. The notion of like, yeah, okay, you know, maybe one of these people who were fed a great deal of the sort of you know gunk uh, on the internet or or on campus. But it's time to get back to basics. Give us, give us some uh, some baby steps here. What what can we do?
6: Well, I think the first thing we've got to start doing is is teaching critical thinking. I, I think that's what happened. That that's what upset me so much about what I saw after October seventh. When you see Harvard and Columbia and and, and others, where you see these these. Young people out there in these organizations that are pro-Palestinian, and then pretty soon that kind of got dropped, and they're just pro-Hamas. Hell, I, I saw one picture where it was gays for Palestinians. Really, you wouldn't want to march that banner into the Gaza Strip. You wouldn't get very far. Is anyone but one not teaching them critical thinking about how is this going to play with these people that I'm? cheering on here, these people I'm putting in a hero role, they would kill you where you stand. They don't tolerate you. And you're over here cheering them on? Are, are you kidding me? And people say, well, this was resistance. I had the Israeli consulate arrange for the IDF to bring me uh, data, footage, uh, that has not been released because I said, "Look, if I'm going to speak on this, I can't be hearsay. I can't just listen to what people say they saw. I don't want to see it, but I need to see it." And I, I, I looked at body cams. I, I looked at video uh, on phones of that were recovered from people that were murdered. I, I, I saw these people celebrating and doing unmentionable sort of things phone calls back home celebrating things they had done in their own voice and these are not things that are subjective this is factual information and they're celebrating this nobody's teaching them critical thinking nobody's teaching them to say wait a minute you know let's let's, let's compare this to basic humanity and it's it's just unbelievable that we're supposedly educating these kids, these these young people, but we're not teaching them how to evaluate things against any kind of moral compass.
0: And what should we do, those of us who are paying attention to all of this, right? I remember in the immediate wake of October 7th, a lot of us were just watching all the videos we could, right? Trying to understand what was happening. We felt like we needed to see everything. It did seem like, for me at least, there was a point at which I had to turn it off. I had to say, like, I cannot watch another horrible video because I don't know what I'm going to do. So when when things like this happen, how do we protect ourselves while also trying to stay informed and also trying to, you know, be a good person? I, I care about what's happening. I care about the people who are suffering, but I also need to sort of like protect myself.
6: Well, uh, yeah, that's a great question, Stephanie. And I think I think the answer is you, you go to a point where you say, okay, I get it. I don't need to see every single atrocity. I, I don't have to have the detail. I I get it. I, I get the extent to which this happened. I understand uh, how unconscionable this was. And I'm I'm not gonna go down that black rabbit hole any further and and lose myself in that. But I've I've gone down far enough to know what we're dealing with, because that's when you, the reality comes home that, you know, we've got these millions of people living across a chain link fence from people that want them dead. And so that informs you when you start saying, okay, how do we negotiate a settlement here when their beginning and ending place is they want you wiped off the face of the earth. And you you have to have that reality check to understand what you're dealing with. And what I've seen in terms of, of the human evaluation of this is people have begun to forget that as you've seen the PR turn on Israel and people start getting critical and saying there's a moral equivalent between what was done there and collateral damage uh, in acts of war. There is no moral equivalent to what was done. It, I mean, it's terrible that people are getting killed if a bomb is dropped and and there's collateral damage. That's not the moral equivalent of someone going invading someone's, a non-combatant's house and murdering unarmed non-combatants uh, in their homes. Those things are not the same. And you have to be informed enough to realize what you're dealing with. And you know once you're there, you don't have to you don't have a hundred more examples of that. You've embraced that reality. You say, okay, I got it. I don't need to keep beating myself over the head with it. And at, at some point, you, you've got to compartmentalize that and say, I understand this in concept. I don't need to deal with this with example after example after example, because it truly will get you so depressed and so downtrodden that you just really can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And there is light. I mean, truly, these people are outliers. This is not human nature. This is not people uh, in the mainstream. These These are radicals that don't belong in society. Something has to happen to marginalize these people where they can't do what they do.
0: So Dr. Phil, you have some changes of your own coming up. You've been with CBS forever. We've we've seen you on TV for years and years. And you're actually you're you're putting out your own shingle. You're starting your own television network. Can you tell us a little bit about Merit Street?
6: I didn't name this uh network by accident. I didn't just throw a dart and pick Merit. It is based on the very strong belief in us all working hard. But yeah, it's a 24-7 network. I I think we're going to launch off in a very huge way. I think we'll be in over 70 million homes day one. It's probably the biggest launch since Fox, uh, which was the fourth network, of course. Dr. Phil Primetime is the anchor show that we'll be on in the evenings. We have uh, four hours of news a day, and then we've got a lot of other original programs we're going to be announcing. and Then we have some legacy programs. We'll have Dr. Phil reruns, of course. Uh, I've got a 21-year library with over 3,500 episodes, so we'll have a lot of that going on. We'll have true crime episodes, things like that. But it's a network that I've designed to be television you can use. I remember the first time I ever did an interview about Dr. Phil, somebody said, what's this going to be about? And I said, I want to talk about things that matter to people who care. And my thinking was, if I can deliver usable, common-sense information to people's homes every day for free, how can you miss? And I I think I was right. I mean, I'm here 25 years later, and that's my goal. If I'm talking about psychological challenges – I've I've stuck to evidence based therapies, things that are proven to work, and we, I've relied a lot on common sense. I know a lot of seventy five cent words. I just try not to use them. I try to explain things in ways people can understand.
1: You know, we've uh, we've been doing this show for for eight years, and really hope to have some longevity here. So, give us tips. Like twenty five years into it. And it doesn't seem like you're bored or tired in the least. It seems like you're just as into it as you are when we first saw you on the screen. Give us some give us some pro tips here. How do we uh, how do we keep the passion going?
6: You know, you you got to change with your audience. That's the best advice I can give you. Is when I started in 2002. Think about this: the first text message had never been sent. <laughs> There were no text messages. And then, as things changed, I had to start changing with, I had to start dealing with things like cyberbullying. Those words had never been used in the same sentence together cyberbullying. That wasn't a thing. And then, in like 08, 09, it's like these big airplanes flew over the United States and dropped smartphones on America. And the whole world changed at that point. We were walking around with computers in our hands. And so we got a whole new set of challenges. And I had to evolve with that and not being very tech savvy. I mean, if I can't fix it by tapping on the top of it, uh, I need to call somebody. So I, I had to figure out what people were dealing with and evolve with that. And then online predators and romance scams, and all of that sort of thing, and then all the positive things that you come up with. Kids today, you say library to them, it's like, what? No, it's a big building with books in it. You can go in there and look. They, they It's Google, it's search engines to them. I mean, it's a whole different world. Now we've got AI. I saw an ad the other day with me selling a product, and I'm holding the product and talking. Never did the ad. It's all a deep fake. It's not me, but it is. It's my voice. It's me speaking, and it's my—I I look better than I look in real life, but it was a deep fake of me. Um, th- that's a whole new challenge that people are going to have to face. So uh, you've got to evolve with your audience, and they'll tell you what's important to them. And I listen to that and you know, try to meet the audience where they are. So I've really tried to pay attention to that.
0: Dr. Phil, as the world's the universe's leading Jewish podcast, we, we welcome Gentiles on our show every now and then, and we like to offer them the opportunity to ask us a question about Judaism, something they've always wondered but never knew. So I don't know if you have <laughs> any questions, but I wanted to extend to you the opportunity as a Gentile minority on this, on this here show.
6: Well, I'll take that opportunity, actually, because you guys were asking me what, you know, My reaction has been, and I'm really curious how you guys are dealing with watching the shift in the world position since October 7th. And we've got issues how you can stand strong for America's soul and sanity. I talk about the fact that we have to be who we are on purpose. And I'm seeing Israel right now being who they are on purpose. They're not caving, it seems, to the shift in in world sentiment and calls for ceasefires and all this type thing. But I'm wondering how you guys react when you see the ADD that takes over when at first everybody is outraged at what happened, but then they seem to be Caving to the PR machine that starts being critical of the toll the war is taking on Palestinians.
0: You know, I'll I'll kick us off. I think that's something that's been hard for a lot of us is seeing how the world has reacted, right? I think that realizing that the people you are friends with, the people you admire from the very beginning, before any sort of counteroffensive started, really just didn't care about this the way they've been trained to care about all the other conflicts, all the other sort of like causes du jour. And I think that it's been very painful for a lot of Jews I know, myself included, to just see, to be let down, I would say, by the realization, the dawning realization, maybe not a new phenomenon, that people just don't really care about Jews the same way. Or they say, oh, no, no, it's Israel. Israel's bad. It doesn't matter. Like, there's a way in which there's this caveat that's been attached to this place that People just don't seem to be as horrified by what happened on October 7th as as they would if it were somewhere else. And I think that that's been a really, really painful realization for a lot of people. And in an amazing way, it's allowed them to double down, right? It's about how important it is to be Jewish and how important it is to be proudly Jewish and loudly Jewish. But I think a lot of people, there's like a heartbreak, I think, of just realizing that from the get-go, this wasn't going to get the same kind of attention um, or care that every other conflict has.
2: Uh, I I would say I would just uh, part of my response is to attempt to respond with balance and nuance to people who aren't showing the same. And uh, to not be monolithic, it's very easy to get backed up in your positions uh, when you are faced with uh, monolithic hatred and anti-Semitism. I think it's possible to be anti-Hamas and pro-Palestinian and pro-Israel at the same time. And uh, so I try to respond with balance where I don't see any. So
1: I, I sadly uh, lack much of uh, my, my friend's magnanimity here, though I though I admire him for it and aspire to it certainly. Look, uh, I'll be honest here. Uh, I was not surprised as, as the sort of resident bearded zealot. Uh, this has been confirming and affirming uh, some things that I've been seeing kind of percolate under the surface for a long time. Uh, but the one thing that it did kind of bring to the surface is that this attack wasn't just in Israel, the country. Uh, to me, it was much, much bigger than that. Israel, if anything, represents to me this perfect combination of faith, family, a nation. It's the embodiment of these three things. And I think the people attacking it did so not just because of geopolitical reasons, but also because they they hate these very concepts. And I think the response has to be precisely doubling down on all three, to double down on your family, to double down on your nation, whether it's Israel or America, and to double down on your faith, because there's no other path for us against this, because really, as you as yourself said a few minutes ago, this is not Israel versus Hamas or America versus Iran or anything like this. To me, it is as simple as good versus evil.
6: Well, that's really helpful to hear from all y'all. And I just, again, thank you so much for letting me be uh, one of the Gentiles that you've had on your podcast <laughs> today. I, I, I really thank you so much. It's been it's been fun. It's been great and uh, and enlightening as well. So I hope we can do it again sometime. Dr. Phil, what a pleasure.
0: We would love that. And, and really thank you for your staunch support. I mean, hearing you come out so vociferously and so uncomplicatedly is, is unusual to us. And so we're like, just always happy to have people, especially non-Jews, say nice things about us and to us. So thank you, Dr. Phil.
6: <laughs> you bet, for being nice to Thanks us. so much.
0: <laughs> yeah. Time for some Mazel teas. What's everyone got going
2: on? I'm pretty excited. Next weekend, I'm going to uh, BBYO's international conference in Orlando, celebrating their 100th anniversary. And I'm excited to be a part of that. Because uh, I went, I think, years ago when it was in New Orleans, and I found it very refreshing and heartening to see young Jews who care about being Jews? Which is maybe our greatest resource as a people, and so I'm excited to uh, meet all the kids and uh, young people there next weekend.
1: Also, Represent.
0: at a hun- hundred years old, BBYO is officially the oldest teenager ever.
2: Exactly, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov to BBYO,
1: <laughs> and and the oldest BB.
2: And I will BY, I will BYOB at BBYO,
1: and you could also uh, have a little taste of Disney next door. I have a double-barreled Mazel Tov. First of all, two. Our beloved Sam Singer, son of our very own, also very beloved Tani Singer, who graduated. We don't mean to boast, but a lot of Naches graduated summa cum laude in just two and a half years from the University of Pennsylvania. Like it's hard.
2: Two and a half years.
1: Two and a half years. Kids. That's are just freaking, that's showing
2: off at this point.
1: Kids a freaking genius. Honestly, could have done it in a year. Uh, but much more important than that, graduated with you know his Jewish neshama on fire with a great, rediscovered, reinvigorated love for all things Jewish. And we're so happy and proud of him. And speaking of love and passion for all things Jewish, the biggest mazel tov to my dear friend, Amber Allen, who just last Thursday joined us by returning home to the Jewish people. So Amber, welcome home and a thrill to have you on board.
0: I love that. that that is amazing. I have a shout out to super listener Gary Weiss. We met at our show in Scottsdale years back. Um he actually gave us his his badge. He was the board chairman of the the Valley of the Sun JCC. At this
1: point would say Gary Weiss is not just a super listener. He's like he's, part, he's part, part of the show.
0: Anyway, he gave he was he's outgoing staff. and he gave us his his little name tag and we have it up in our office. Anyway, Gary Weiss is headed to Israel on Saturday with his brother-in-law David Klein on a volunteer and solidarity mission with the Minneapolis Federation. So there's 28 frozen chosen. That's what the Jews of Minneapolis call themselves. And and he says they're the two desert tagalongs with the 28 frozen chosen uh, members of the Minneapolis Federation. They'll be volunteering and working every day. And he's so excited and can't wait. We are so excited for you, Gary. And we can't wait to hear all about it.
1: If anyone could fix all the problems in Israel, Gary Weiss. I think it's him. You, you're the man.
0: All right, Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccio, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Daron Ruskay, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem, And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914 914-570-4869. Until next week, shalom friends and kasha the fiesta wear.